Good morning. We want to talk this morning about the idea of maintaining and cultivating a spiritual hunger, even a spiritual desperation. There's a safety that comes to us in that. And I want to read starting in Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' teaching of the Beatitudes, what we call the Beatitudes. And Jesus simply says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is God's influence in our lives. And I think that, that this should interest us, the longing for his influence in our, in our experience in the human dimension. Um, we pray for it. It's one of the things that's rooted and stuck in the heart of the Lord's teaching to us on prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So the reason it's so important is because it brings grace to bear. Grace is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word charis. And it comes, it was an old word that was used in the day to kind of, it was used in the brothels, in the bars, when the pagans would lift their glasses to one another and they clanged them together. They would say charis to each other. And what it meant was, the gods be with you. It was an equivalent of saying, have a good day because the gods are with you kind of idea. Well, the Christians knew that didn't really mean anything, but they thought if God were actually for us, if there would be a favor of God in our lives through Jesus Christ, we really would have a good day, right? And so they co-opt the term charis and put it into the message of the gospel to explain this impulse of God that he loves to break into our lives. Loves to break in with his favor that's not merited, that is based on him more than on us. And that somehow as we open our lives to grace, that we would see the influence of God in the context of our homes, in the workplace, even in places where we sit alone. That somehow we would have this sense of good dawning, that good days would be our experience. Jesus says that this belongs, this kingdom business, belongs to the poor in spirit. And the word poor just literally means poverty stricken. It's this notion that, that for people who don't have anything to trust, they have nothing to rely on, they have nothing to lean upon, they're absolute abject poverty. If it isn't for outside help, they're toast. And so Jesus is saying, when you understand that, there's, that you have need on a spiritual level, that there's nothing for you to trust, when there's this longing in your heart that, that you have to have someone else outside of yourself help you, that's the kind of poverty he's referring to, that this person receives the influence of God. So God influences those who don't trust in themselves. To kind of capture folks who are poor in spirit, there's a parable that Jesus tells. It's in Matthew 21. And Jesus is talking about these two sons. He says, what do you think? There was this guy who had two sons. He went to the first son and he said, son, go and work today in my vineyard. (laughs) And he says, I will not. (laughs) You know, just right out there. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind 
And then he goes. And then the father went to the other son. He said the same thing. He, he answered the other son said, well, I will. I'll do it, dad. I will, sir. But he didn't do it, right? Which of the two, Jesus asked, and he's talking to the Pharisees, the very religious people. Which of these two did what the father wanted? And they said, well, the first. And Jesus said to you, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors, and these guys hated tax collectors. They thought they were the scum of the earth. And the prostitutes, who they always wanted to stone. These, these collectors and these prostitutes, they're entering into the influence of God. They're entering into a place where God is moving and breaking into their lives ahead of you. For John, talking about John the Baptist, he came to show you the way of rightness, the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. You didn't think you needed him. You didn't think you needed anything. You were not poor. You're full of yourselves, full of your actions. But the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they knew they had nothing. And so they believed him. They took his help. And even after you saw them being helped, you saw God breaking into their lives and transforming them, you didn't repent. You didn't believe him. See, when you juxtapose these two sons, you have the first one that goes immediately. He says, no. And you got to love the honesty of that, the brashness of that. The, the, the reality is, is there's a kind of innocence about it. I mean, you would at least think he would think, what will my dad think, right? But he doesn't. No, I'm not going to do that. No, that's not going to happen. And, 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 and then when he goes away, he, it seems that he starts getting nagged by the question, will you help me? And, and the, the, this, this request he had rejected out of hand, he's getting nagged by it. And at some point he considers, what if it's a good thing that I help my dad? And so he does it. On the flip side, the other son starts, to go, well, yes, of course, dad, I will help. Right? But he doesn't do it. You know, maybe he just said yes to avoid any follow-up questions, right? Maybe he said yes because he wanted to be accepted. Maybe he said yes to kind of live up to an image he had in his mind but didn't have the, the kind of um, a character to sustain that image. We don't know why he says no in this, but at some point, or yes rather, but at some point he says, after he said yes, he decides, I'm not going to do that. So he doesn't do it. He doesn't go there. I don't care what I said. And Jesus said, which one of these two really does what the father wants? And they said, well, of course, it's the tax collectors and the the prostitutes. It's the one who were seemingly rebellious and seemingly um, hard-hearted. And so Jesus favors the sinners over the righteous in this story. Why? I'd like to suggest that sinners, though they're brash and though initially hard-hearted, they're more likely to respond to God in a positive way than people who seem to be full of rightness in their own mind. Why is that? The righteous are less poor. They're less hungry. They're less desperate. They're more full of themselves, full of their activities, full of their accomplishments. And being full precludes hunger. And when you lose your hunger, the kingdom eludes you. This call to hunger and to desperation, it's in the backdrop of the whole of sacred text. 
over and over, there's this call to us to cultivate hunger and thirst for God and his influence in our lives, that we have something to do with how that actualizes in our lives. You look at texts like Matthew 5 and 6, just a little later in the Beatitudes, and Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Hunger is a real motivating thing. Thirst is a real motivating thing. You let a crowd grow hungry long enough, and they will try to move to rebel and take over where they are. So he says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. And then in Matthew 7, he makes this statement to the disciples. He said, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. It kind of eludes us how the, uh, the, the Greek actually reads. Some translations do read this way. It shows this notion of a, of a kind of persistence. It reads, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. And if you do that, it'll be given to you. If you seek, you will find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. It's this notion of importunity, this notion of going after it like a chicken on a dune bug. Right? For everyone who asks, receive. Anyone who seeks and keeps seeking, find. Anyone who knocks and keeps knocking, the door will be opened to him. It's this notion again of hunger, thirst, direction. In Romans, Paul picks up on this in Romans 12. He says, never be lacking in zeal. Zeal is you're just running at it. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I think there's some natural enemies to this. Things that sort of push hunger out of our grasp and we just get satiated. Things that that make us not be fervent. Things that make us not be desperate for God, zealous for God. I want to give you four of them. One of them is just maturity. Sometimes when you've been in the things of God and you're growing or grew up in the church or whatever, you tend to feel like you kind of know your way around and you've sort of matured. There's no longer that hunger that there's more. There's no longer that hunger to understand what you don't understand. And you can kind of settle in because you're just all grown up, right? Another one, the second one is the idea of socialization. Some of us, if we're not careful, we, we want to belong in the community of faith because we want to belong somewhere. And it's not that we're in pursuit of God, but we're more in pursuit of belonging. You know, all of us have that need to belong. To not belong feels a little like suicide. It's scary to not belong, to not matter. And we have it all over, groups all over that get started, the craziest, you know, groups. I was in uh, St. Louis one time and staying, I was speaking at a church and I was staying at this motel and the whole motel was full of people that had been saving or they were collectors of salt and pepper shakers. (laughs) I kid you not, it was a whole weekend uh, and they had some, it was some acronym they had for their salt and pepper shaker uh, uh, international thing, right? And I'm walking around, all their doors were open. They have like, like shrines of salt and pepper shakers. Walking around, they had, they had meetings. And, and, you know, all this over salt and pepper shaker gatherings. I thought, boy. Or, or some of you know, you know, if you, you go to a particular bar and you walk in and, and everybody's got blue jeans on and those kind of boots on and a big old buckle on and that kind of shirt on and one of those hats, where are you? You're at a cowboy bar, man. And if you want to be accepted, get you some garb. And you can walk in and they'll all cowboy you, man, because you, you, you got the boundary markers down. You belong. You're in. Or you can go to another kind of gathering and if you throw on some, you know, big old black boots and maybe some leather pants and, you know, some kind of shirt that shows your tats, even if you just 
pasting them on. And, uh, and, and you're driving, what are you driving? A Harley. What are you, man? You're a biker and you belong. The motivation of being there, you know, I mean, I even like biking, but you could just be there because you want to belong somewhere. Sometimes people come into the things of the church and because we just want to belong. There's not a real hunger for God. And if you just want to belong, it will satiate what's beyond the obvious, what's beyond the seen. Another thing that sort of is an enemy to hunger and zeal and fervor is when you get disappointed. You can have a hunger for God and a fervor for God and you can start praying and all of a sudden you hit a spot in your life where everything you thought was supposed to work stops working. We all have seasons like that. Sometimes, you know, I just, it can be that you get a, a, some kind of a report from the doctor or whatever, or life, you lose a job, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, hope deferred, the scripture says, makes the heart sick. So here you are in faith, here you are trusting, here you're hoping something will happen, you're pursuing God, you seek God about it, and it just doesn't happen. Your hope gets deferred, and you're sitting there sick, you're sitting there hurting. It can quell your hunger and your zeal and your fervor. There's a verse in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. I'm crying out to you by day, but you don't answer. I'm crying out to you by night, but I don't find rest. If you've never had these moments, you will. They come. Job had some weeks of a sucky life. And he writes, in, or he says in Job's 30, it records to us, Job 30. And now my life ebbs away, days of suffering grip me. The good days seem to be gone. Night pierces my bones, my gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment, but he throws me into the mud. And I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with your might of your hand. You attack me. This is in the Bible. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. Surely no one lays a hand on those who are crushed when they cry for help in their distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Have, has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I become like a brother of jackals. I'm a freaking jackal. Nobody wants to be a jackal. A companion of owls, which means you don't sleep. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre, which is an instrument for rejoicing, is turned, tuned to mourning. And my pipe, which is an instrument for peace, has been tuned to the sound of wailing. See, disappointment can strip you of your hunger and of your zeal and your spiritual fervor. Then the fourth thing that can do it, I think, is, is this issue of mental assent. 
It's this, it's this notion that you agree when you hear the call of prayer. Yeah, amen. We should care for people. Amen. I agree with that. I'm aware of that. But we never develop a plan to actually do it. It's called the deception of intention. This happens all the time between Gail and I. You know, she, uh, she'll come to me. She'll come to me and say, honey, will you clean the garage today? Absolutely, baby. Consider it done. And, uh, you know, what ends up happening, don't talk. What ends up happening <laughs> is the day gets busy. I'm a busy man. Emails come in unexpectedly. Phone calls come in unexpectedly. I remember things I forgot, and by the end of the day, somehow I have this, this seeming important job of cleaning the garage over against helping lives out of the flames of hell show up. <laughs> and of course, I say, honey, I'm sorry. And, you know, it depends on the tone of her voice at this point. Because if she says to me, well, or anything like that, I'm just so offended. Because doesn't she know I intended to do it? And in a way, inside my own heart of hearts, my intention is doing it. <laughs> How many men would agree with me and say that makes total sense? God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. I see those hands. <laughs> see, I think, I think we do that with God. We hear about we should pray. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I think God would rather have us say, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, I don't want to pray. It's boring. <laughs> and then later, consider it and go, you know, it may not be that boring. Maybe, I, maybe it's good that I pray. And then go do it. See, I think that we're so trained to be, amen, praise God. Yes, I stand for that. And we are just full of, the French word is crap. <laughs> I think what lies at the heart of faith without zeal and a faith without desperation is we're just too familiar with the things of God. We forget how much of an other he is. We forget how much mystery there is and we lose a bit of the terror that should fill us. It's when my dad was, when I was young, remember your dad when you were young? He both fascinated and terrorized you on some level. I mean, even, I'm not talking about he's mean. I mean. If you had a mean dad, I'm not saying that my dad wasn't mean. He was very gentle, loving, kind, giving. But there was a part of my dad that freaked me out. He was my dad. I mean, I when I was a little guy, he was my you know, and, and he could beat you up. You, your dad too. My dad could beat your dad up. You know, it was that kind of thing. You know, just my dad's amazing kind of thing. There, there's something of a terror. Some, when you get older, you kind of lose that and you realize he's just a person, right? I think we do that with God. We, we accept God is, God is always not only wonderful, but he's terrible. He's full of wonder. And on some level, there should always be that, like when dad walks in, you know, there should be something there. And if we're not careful, we'll become too familiar with it. And what ends up happening when we get too familiar is we relax, we chill, we put our souls into neutral. We're not passionate, we're not desperate, we're not hungry, we're familiar. But any relationship, to keep it alive, much less a relationship with a person we can't see, any relationship, you have to attend to it. You have to 
fight for it, to keep it fresh. And and an interesting statement from Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21. He makes this statement. He says, for where your treasure is, for where your treasure is, the thing that you treasure is the thing that you're really aware of. In the Lord of the Rings, the Bilbo or Remember, or who was the guy? I guess it was Bilbo. One of those guys, little short guys. Anyway, he, um, <laughs> he had a treasure. Remember, it was the ring. And my precious. And, and the, 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 he knew, always knew where it was. Always knew where that ring was. He was totally aware of the ring. That's because he treasured it. Whatever you treasure, Jesus said, that's where your heart goes. If your heart's going the wrong way, it's because you're treasuring the wrong things. He, he, he was talking specifically about possessions here, but I think there's a principle here. The pattern is what you treasure, that's where your heart goes. I used to think it was the opposite. I used to think I was treasuring where my heart was long. That if I wanted, if I was treasuring the wrong things, I remember going to the altar and sort of being myself, God, I'm paying attention to the wrong things. I'm doing the wrong things. Change my heart. Change my heart. Not understanding that the problem wasn't my heart, the problem was my attention. That's why temptation is so glittery and tries to get your attention. Because if a temptation can get your attention, it has a shot at your heart. That's why when the gospel breaks into a new area, usually historically, a lot of times miracles accompany it. Why? Because if miracles happen, it gets people's attention. And when people's attention comes... There's a shot at their heart. What's wonderful about this is that you can't change your heart, but you can change your attention. And if you understand what you attend to, your heart goes there, then you can start redirecting your heart. The iPhone 6, which I had to get. It was just the Lord. I was was totally happy with the iPhone 5. Totally happy with the iPhone 5. Um, I was happy with the iPhone 4 before the iPhone 5 came up. But anyway, the point is, the iPhone 5, I had no idea about the iPhone 6. I mean, who would have thought of it? iPhone 6. You thought iPhone 5 is the limit. But iPhone 6, they said iPhone 6. I remember the first time, uh, I think Paul, you mentioned me, iPhone, Pop, did you hear the iPhone 6 is coming out? And when he just said it, and it caught my attention, there was a little, in my spirit. It wasn't very much. It wasn't, it didn't command me. My heart didn't get let loose. But just start, just the, and then as the months passed on, another little red little thing. And, and then before, you know, you know it, they did the announcement. They have this whole like presentation. I watched the presentation. And when I, I saw the presentation, I saw them holding it in their hand. And I saw the picture of it. It was like I was going, <gasps> I felt it. used to the Holy Spirit say, get it now. Like, all right. I surrender all. I surrender all. Chipper, notice you may not think about a new car at all. Your car is just fine. Then you visit one of those car lots and you walk into the car showroom and those cars in the new car showroom, it's like they're holy. <laughs> and you go up to the door and you pull on the handle and it goes, boom. You know, just like a boom. It just opens up and you go, whoa. Boy, this has changed my life. I just think it will change my life. And you sit inside and you go, and it doesn't smell like the curdled milk your children left in there. It smells <laughs> new. 
and it, this leather goes up. Oh, and you're putting your hands on it. And what happens in your heart? <gasps> I think it's the Holy Spirit telling me to buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it. I love this car. What happened? You weren't loving it a few minutes ago because it wasn't in your attention. The secret Jesus is telling us is you can direct your heart by directing your attention. If your heart is in the wrong place, you're attending to the wrong things. You can start re If your heart is not into your spouse, it isn't because they are bad. If your heart's not into your spouse, you just haven't been attending to him or her. You haven't been looking. You haven't been spending time. You haven't sat across from each other and just looked at each other. Because wherever you put your mind, maybe you're not attending to them because they've disappointed you. And you don't want to attend to them because it just reminds you of the disappointment or the hurt. And so you stop paying attention to them. And if you're not careful, you'll start imagining being with another. And so your attention goes there. Or just not being with them and your attention goes there. What would life be like without him? And before you know it, your heart starts to shut down. There's no desire. There's no desire. Why? Because desire follows attention. Ask yourself, what are we called to love? And then ask yourself, are you attending to those things? This is the why of coming to church. This is the why of doing things. I pray the daily office, which is just Google if you don't know what it is. But you can, it's just basically praying two or three times a day. It's all the way back into ancient Judaism where you read the psalmist in three times a day, I turn to praise you. It's this idea of in multiple times of the day. It doesn't have to be long. You, there's books on it. I have a little book called The Divine Office by Phyllis Tickle. And uh, it's, a, it's a great little book. It takes about seven minutes, eight minutes to pray through or longer if you wanted to. And I pray through it once or twice, at least once, usually two or three times in a day. I'll stop and pray through the office. And the reason I do it is not to get an Eagle Scout badge from God. I don't want what I've earned from God. Neither do you. But you know what I want to do? I, I want to just attend to him. Because what I found out is if I just attend to this invisible one who loves to hide in my life, if I just attend to him, all of a sudden I desire him. I feel a hunger for him. I realize he's unknowing and I lean into the unknowableness of him. That's why, uh, you know, whatever you need to love more, pay attention. If you hate your job, start praying about your job. Start saying, God, thank you. I actually get a paycheck instead of complaining that it's not more. Or thank you, Lord, that I can be on the job and, and serve these people I've been working at. I, I took a, a, a position at Tulsa University teaching in the, in the religion and philosophy department. And I'm, I'm doing this, and it's a lot of work because I've never done this. I've, never, I've taught, obviously, but I've never done a whole scope and sequence of this thing. And it's really hard. And at a couple of points where I start going, I'm getting a little tired, I'll stop because I know what that means. When you get tired and you just, yeah, you start becoming the suck. So I'll stop and go, thank you, Lord. I'm doing this as unto you. And if I can just get a glimpse at him in that context, all of a sudden I start desiring to do it better so I can glorify him and all of a sudden it becomes alive. The kingdom starts breaking in and all of a sudden I'm having a little caress and it's a good day. Cling. We don't attend to things. They become familiar to us. And when things get familiar to you, they disappear. 
right? As long as they kept the ring off and kept it in their pocket, they were, but the minute they put the ring on, what happens? They disappear. Possession in Tolkien's philosophy is making things disappear. We had a house in Wisconsin back years ago. This was in the early 80s that Gail and I got into. When we first got into it, we thought it was amazing, great opportunity. It was really cool. We found out it was the... Uh, black box of money and it was a disaster. So we got in the house. It took us forever to get things organized. We finally got in it. We got in it and the heat wasn't working quite right and everything wasn't working quite right and there was this old orange carpet from the 50s that were sitting in there. We finally ripped it out because it was so disgusting. But in its place were all these nails with toe jam like material around the nails. It was disgusting. It was nasty. And we had a crawler, a little six-year-old, six-month-old who would crawl around, and uh, he, it was Robert. And, 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 you know, Gail would be mortified because he'd be getting close to the toe jam. And then one day we found toe jam in his mouth. <laughs> so we were looking forward to the carpet. And I remember the day, we both remember the day when the carpet layers came. And the first thing they did was lay the pad. It was a glorious pad. I mean, it, it was just beautiful. And I remember thinking, if that's all we got, God be praised. <laughs> right? And then they started rolling out that carpet. The nap was this thick. <laughs> and when you stepped on it, it, it sang to you, I am here. I'm the new carpet. Aren't you glad I'm here? You're here. I'm here. And I go, yes, I love you. And for about three weeks, I mean, even when I'd come down the stairs, you know, to come to the carpeted area there, I would look over the banister and just listen to it singing to me, marveled by its beauty. And then slowly, slowly, it started to disappear. I stopped noticing it. And within six months, I didn't notice it at all, except when friends would come over or people would come over and they'd say, boy, that's a pretty carpet. And for just a moment... Almost like a, a vapor. I could kind of remember when it used to sing to me. It was singing to them. But I couldn't quite get the song. And it just immediately left. That's what happens with things. We also do that to people. We also do that to God. We talk about the kingdom of God breaking into our lives. Yeah, amen. And we can kind of remember when that first dawned on us. Or Jesus is actually alive. He is risen. He is risen. It means he's alive that he can be contacted right now. And we used to go, oh, that used to sing to us. And now, yeah, yeah. Oh, kickoff. Literally. <laughs> I felt the spirit leave just a little. Just... It's a Packer game. <laughs> All right, we need to hurry because we just need to hurry. Um, <laughs> I'm going to leave you with three ways to cultivate hunger, cultivate desperation. Number one is pretty easy. Wait for trouble. It does come. When 9-11 hit, the churches in Manhattan were packed. Packed for a few months. Because when people get hungry and desperate, they run to God. You get a bad report from the doctor, you'll run to God. If your marriage or your family starts falling apart, you usually run to God. If you lose your job, you usually run to God. 
We even run to God when we get in unusual kind of circumstances. Like going on a missions trip. People will go on a missions trip but because they're not trusting in themselves. I mean, they're, not, they're poor in spirit. They don't know how to act in this particular country. They don't know. They're just there because they want to do something to help people find God. And so they're just empty and they start going, God. And the kingdom dawns. And you hear, talk to people who go on mission trips. Or go on one. one of the things that's so amazing is how clear God's voice was to you. When we get back to America, we, we don't need God. I know how to work. I know what I do. I got my routine. There's no poor in spirit. And there's not much kingdom. So, wait for trouble. Number two, choose to become a learner and stay a learner. In other words, realize you don't know everything. You're talking about an infinite God. You don't get it. We can't get our minds around him. There's still tons we don't understand. Jesus said in John 16, 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. I try to believe that verse. I try to say to him, God, you, you, Jesus, you know more stuff than I can bear right now. Would you help me? Though start making me stretch. You help me. I want to know more. I want to know more than I know. I want to understand more than I understand. There's more. It's like the prophet in, in 2 Chronicles 26 makes this statement. The Lord has much more for you than this. Think about your life, your family, your, your job, your experience. What if that text is true? That the Lord has much more for you than what you see. If you entertain that thought, you'll start being a learner. If you start being a learner, you'll start getting hungry, desperate, fervent. Around 15 years ago, I lost my way, which led to me stepping out of ministry for about two years. And even though there's a million things that contributed to that disaster in my life, one precursor that became very clear that I ran into a season that preceded my demise and there was a shift in my mind from being a learner to being a master teacher. Because of my success, I lost my hunger. I lost my desperation. I lost the kingdom. I lost Karis. The good days stopped. And then the third thing that you can do to rekindle your hunger is consciously choose to love God. Matthew 22 says it this way, Love the Lord your God with all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. I sometimes tell God, God, I love you with some of my heart and some of my soul and some of my mind. Help me. I need to love you more. I want to love you more. I don't love you enough. When we say love, we sort of, it's a homogenized word in English. You know, we'll say, I love God, and I love ice cream, and I love my wife, and I love my dog, and I love that song, right? We just use love for all of that. Uh, hopefully, you don't love your wife like you love your dog, or God like you love ice cream, right? We actually mean something different when we say it, but it's not clear in the words. But in Greek, it's a little more clear. Uh, it's a little more descriptive. We have words like for love like agape, which means a kind of unconditioned love that's based on the one loving, not the one being loved. Beautiful word. Or storge. It's the Greek word that means it's a friendship kind of love, a reciprocation that happens. There's a number of words like this. And one of them that we're all aware of is eros. 
Eros is usually that talked about only in the context of sexual love or erotic. We get the word erotic from it. But honestly, it's not just a physical love. That's not what the word just means. In fact, it implies a kind of love that is focused. In physical love, if you're intimately with someone or kissing your spouse or something, while you're there in that, that moment, you're not thinking, hmm, I wonder if we can watch the news while we do this. While you're kissing your wife, you're not thinking, I wish we could watch the news. You're not, because Eros doesn't multitask. Historically, the church has used the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, which is the most kind of physical book in the Bible, talking about physicality between a man and a woman. And yet, the church always used it as talking about Christ and the church. Not to be vulgar, not to be seedy, but there was something about eros, the focus of it, the pushing away of the multitasking that speaks of one of the ways that we're to love God. It's a love that's in pursuit. There's no rest. There's no adrift to other kind of pulls or other kinds of interests. It's a focused love. It's a love that was intended to be an emptying and surrendering love that's mirrored often in physicality. Here's the question. Are you cultivating despair, desperate love for God, hungry love for God in your spirituality? Or are you sort of just casual? Where are you at? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Father, would you help us grow in our hunger? and our fervency, and our zeal. Through Christ our Lord, everyone says, amen. Why don't you stand with us? I want to invite those of you participating in communion and in worship, come forward. As they're coming, would you sort of open your hearts? And right before we come to the table, Paul talked about us examining our hearts. We're going to come to this moment that represents his death, his sacrifice. We're celebrating the one who takes away the sin of the world. And so before we receive, let's just take a moment and examine our hearts and call to mind our sins. Father, we have sinned by what we have done, by what we have left undone. But thank you that we can come to this table and that we come to the one who takes away the sin of the world. And so as we confess our sins, we're trusting that you forgive us and that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means we can stand before you without blame, without guilt, forgiven. As we pray this prayer that he taught us to pray, right in the middle of it, it says, forgive us our trespasses. We believe he does. So let's pray as he taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God, through your goodness, we bring this bread and we bring this cup, which has come from the earth through the work of human hands, as an offering to you. We invite your presence into this moment and we celebrate that you've chosen this meal to make us one in Christ and one with each other. And so we offer these gifts and ourselves in a single living act of praise. At this moment, the church has always referred to it as the epiclesis. It means that we're trusting the Holy Spirit to come and to somehow enter the bread and enter the cup so that it becomes for us in some mystical way the body and blood of Christ. It's a moment as we pray. And so for those of you who have centering prayer, you're a prayer kind of person, or you received your prayer language, any of that kind of thing, or you're just a person who just loves God, let's just focus for a couple of moments. Open ourselves up to God for just a couple of moments before we invite the Holy Spirit to do this. So go ahead. If you can pray in your prayer language, pray under your breath a little bit and just start worshiping God if you center in just for a moment. We invite you, Spirit of God, into this space. We worship you. Shine forth in this moment, we pray. We come to you as a people. We come in this moment. God, fill the very atmosphere that we're in with your presence. Oh, we bless you and we worship you and we honor you. Stay with me, family. Stay with me. We honor you, Jesus. We worship you, Father. Come, Holy Spirit, come. We bless your name. We bless your name. We bless your name. We open our hearts to you, God, in this moment right now. Shine forth, shine forth, shine forth, shine forth, oh God. Glory to your name. Just stay with me another couple moments. Just worship him. Show forth your name and your power. God, we bless your name. God, we bless your name. We bless you, God. We honor you. Spirit of God, we come and we ask you to fill this house. Fill this house with your presence. Fill this house with your glory, Jesus. Oh, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Would you lift the bread? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body. Father, may the Holy Spirit sanctify this bread and let it become for us the body of Jesus Christ our Lord as we celebrate this great mystery which he has left us and is as an everlasting covenant. And so by faith we say, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. Would you take the cup? In the same way, after supper, 
Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance means to make me present. And so, Father, we trust that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will make this cup holy and that it may become for us the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, at whose command we celebrate this Eucharist. And so by faith as a people, we say, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, grant that we who are nourished by this body and by this blood may be filled with the Holy Spirit ourselves and that we may be brought into unity in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's declare the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Happy is the person that comes to his table. Let's come and receive. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.